You may open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Thank you, brothers, for reading the Scriptures to us. For those listening to an audio tape or watching a videotape, it is profitable to read Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 20 as preparatory material to coming into the epistle to the Ephesians since those chapters tell us of Paul's ministry there. I would also suggest that you read 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, because it is in those verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the Bible tells us that there is hidden wisdom, the mysteries of God that have been revealed by His Spirit to the apostles and prophets first, as the book of Ephesians is going to make clear before we get through this book. And then they in turn preached it to us in spiritual words from the Scriptures. There are mysteries. Mysteries unknown to natural men. Mysteries unknown to the princes of this earth because if they had known them, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They could not see who He was, though He made it manifestly clear to anyone that would have looked. The Lord Jesus Christ performed miracles for three and a half years. He never took a dime from anyone. He never wronged anyone. He was pure grace from His lips. And yet, they crucified Him and caused Him to die on the cross of Calvary. They didn't see it, but we do see it. Because He that is spiritual judgeth all things. A spiritual born-again man where the Holy Spirit of God is working is able to see the Lord Jesus Christ and the mysteries that God has planned in and through Him. We know who rules the universe at this moment. It is the man, Christ Jesus, sitting on a throne at the right hand of God Almighty. And He is our Savior and He will not lose a single one of us. He is gathering together all things in heaven and in earth into one body, one kingdom, restoring the purity of the universe in which at the very end He will destroy death, the devil, His angels, all wicked men, and there will be new heavens and a new earth in which reign righteousness. And the Lord Jesus Christ will reign as King over all, our brother, our Savior, and our friend. I just announced to you yesterday in the preparatory email that I would be preaching from Ephesians, and I was very pleased to get a response back from a brother in this church that a couple brothers in this congregation are in fact having a little competition among themselves, memorizing the first chapter of Ephesians. It's those kind of little rumors that please pastors. And and I commend any of you that are memorizing the Word of God, and especially those brothers that wanted to learn this first chapter, because it contains what we believe and preach here. The sign in front of our church declares that we are predestinarian Baptists meaning that we are Baptists that believe in predestination. We believe in predestination because Paul was a predestinarian. And the Bible teaches predestination. And two of the uses of that word are right here in Ephesians chapter 1. The book of Ephesians has two parts. It's one of the simpler books of the New Testament. The first three chapters deal with the doctrine of salvation and conclude with an amen at the end of chapter 3. And then chapter 4 takes up with a therefore, because of what has been described of God and His works toward us in saving us, how should we walk as Christians and as the children of God in this world 
And that is contained in chapters 4 through 6, the remainder of the book. Our practical duties in how we can please the Lord. The city of Ephesus was a great city. A pagan worshiper of the goddess Diana, which you can read in Acts chapter 19. A city full of witchcraft, where there were vagabond Jews that thought themselves exorcists, that thought they would adopt the name of Jesus whom Paul preached in casting out devils, but it wasn't very effective, as you can read in Acts 19. You can see that the city of Ephesus had a great deal of witchcraft. Those that believed came and brought their books, and there was a great public burning of witchcraft, horoscopes, Ouija boards, fortune cookies, anything that you want to do, anything that you want to collect together that has to do with a false claim to knowing the future was brought together and burned and the value of that pile of junk was 50,000 pieces of silver. We're told all that in Acts 19. These people were worshipers of Diana and the image that fell from Jupiter, supposedly, and witchcraft. And so when the Apostle Paul says that there had been exceeding great power exerted on their behalf to believe the gospel, you can believe it. And brethren, if you know your hearts, you can believe that that same power was exerted for you to believe. Let's begin the book. We will not deal too long with any one phrase. I hope that when we conclude, you'll have some degree of confidence in most or all the phrases of this epistle. I'll take it verse by verse. Ephesians 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now you know Paul, so I don't need to give you any further introduction to him. This is Saul of Tarsus, and he had been violently and gloriously converted on the road to Damascus, when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him as a light that was brighter than the noonday sun. But he tells us that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is a word that's rather unique to our New Testaments, meaning a messenger or a witness. Paul was one of those witnesses of the Lord Jesus, special witnesses. To be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ so that you could be an eyewitness to those that you spoke to that you knew He was risen from the dead because you had seen Him. Now, the Apostle Paul saw Jesus Christ out of due order. He said, I didn't see Jesus the ordinary way, the normal way that the other apostles did. He appeared to me privately and specially. But Paul had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was an apostle. Apostle is an office that Jesus Christ ordained for men that He gave special powers to. In the New Testament, they are called the signs of an apostle, which meant great power in signs and wonders. They could do anything that the New Testament describes. They could preach in other tongues. They could raise the dead. They could heal the sick. They could cast out devils. If they drank poison, it wouldn't hurt them, and they could take up serpents. It wouldn't hurt them, as Paul shows in Acts 27 and 28. Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but notice what it says then, and what a way to introduce this book. By the will of God. No man takes the office of the ministry to himself. We're taught that in Hebrews chapter 5 and throughout the rest of the Bible. For a bishop to become a bishop, it doesn't matter whether he desires the office or not. 
If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. But desiring the office of a bishop is not a prerequisite to be a bishop. It just says if you desire it, you desire a good work. And then it lists the qualifications that other ministers should recognize. However, we're not dealing with the office of bishop. We're dealing with apostle. The Lord Jesus Christ had many disciples, and the Bible tells us that of and from and out of those many disciples, he chose twelve to be his apostles. Judas gave up his office by, by hanging himself. He was replaced with Matthias. Paul was an apostle. Barnabas was an apostle. So there we have 15. There may have been more. But they were special messengers and witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was by the will of God. God specially chose them. God said that Paul was a special vessel for him. He was going to give his gospel to him like he gave it to no other, and he was going to take that gospel to the Gentiles. We read about that great event in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. Three times we have the story of Paul's conversion and call to the ministry. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus. This is the church at Ephesus that our brothers read to us about this morning from Acts 19 and 20. This is the same church we read about in Revelation 2. The first church addressed to the seven in Asia that John wrote to on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had lost their first love in Revelation chapter 2. So we are familiar somewhat with this church But this epistle is also addressed to the faithful in Christ Jesus who were not part of the Ephesian saints, who were not part of that church. When he wrote the Corinthians, he worded it a little more fully. And let me read it to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 so that you can understand what he's saying. Paul said to the church of God which is at Corinth, And all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Their children and our children. There's a, there's, an, a, there's a family of God throughout the earth. Sometimes it's called the body of Christ. Sometimes it's called the church. Universal, meaning all of God's elect. But here in this place, Paul addresses the Ephesian church and others, and that others that are faithful in Christ Jesus, I hope, apply to us. Amen. Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle starts all of his epistles this way. He concludes his epistles this way. Is it important for you to have grace in your life? Do you need ongoing grace? Amen, you do. You cannot live a day and please the Lord God of heaven without the grace of God helping you do it. By nature, you are corrupt and you have an old man. And without the grace to put on the new man, you'll fail. And so Paul prays for grace. He prays for peace. Do you want to have peace with God in your own heart? That peace is something that God can give. He's able to give a peace that passes understanding. And we want, He wants us to have a peace with others as well. A child of God ought to be marked by grace in his life from God, doing those things that God requires, and peace. He has peace with God and he has peace with the children of God. And so we come to verse 3, which begins one sentence that runs through verse 6, and it's a glorious sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Is the God of heaven blessed to you? 
Paul is blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you bless Him in your hearts? Is He blessed to you? Is He the blessed God to you? Paul starts right out with his first words after his salutation. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he mentions blessings three times in this verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. In Christ. I find it also interesting as we look at this epistle and we think of this as a personal letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church. In those first three verses, we have references to Jesus Christ five times. Now, if you would have done that in English class, you would have had a red pen on your paper saying redundant, meaning you were repeating something too often. But when the Apostle Paul wrote, the gospel is so centralized around Jesus Christ that it is never redundant to mention His name. All that we have, all that we are, all that we have been saved from, all that we shall ever enjoy, the object of our worship for eternity is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's mentioned over and over again. Notice in verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and all spiritual blessings are in Christ. When we depart from the Lord Jesus Christ being the central theme and the object of our affection and our attention and our worship and our devotion, we have left the gospel that the Apostle Paul taught. Jesus Christ must be a central, the central figure. He is the chief cornerstone of our church. He's the head of our church. He is our apostle. He is our high priest. He is our savior, our redeemer, our judge. He is all in all. He's the alpha and the omega. We can never forsake him. I want you to notice that. But I want you to notice that all blessings begin with God. We start the Bible by reading, in the beginning, God. And we begin Ephesians by reading, blessed be the God. It is God that chooses to bless. He said of Himself, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That is a powerful, sovereign being. He could say, so then it is not of him that willeth, but of God that showeth mercy. Amen. It is not the will of man, but it is the will of God. And God has willed things for your life. He has willed your destiny, which is what predestination means. It means to settle your destiny beforehand. Now that is one great and glorious being. And he is not being preached in very many pulpits. But God help us. Let's preach Him here in this pulpit. And let God help us. Let us believe it in these PUs. That the God of heaven is the sovereign Lord of the universe and all blessings begin with Him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, God is the Father of Jesus Christ in a little different way than He's our Father. But Jesus Christ is the Son of God and we are the sons of God as well and we are brethren. He calls us brethren in the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ is your brother. The God of heaven raised up a brother that was mighty. And he laid help upon one that is mighty. And the Lord Jesus Christ has rescued all of his brethren that he he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He's the firstborn. He gets all the preeminence. He gets all the glory. 
Because he saved the rest of us. He's our Lord and our Redeemer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, not who is trying to bless us, nor who will bless us, but who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All spiritual blessings are in heavenly places in Christ. They're not known on this earth. They're mysteries on this earth. They're in heavenly places. Heavenly places is used here. It's used later in this chapter. It's used in chapter 2. It's describing heaven and any place but this earth where the realities and verities of God are practiced and displayed to the universe. All the blessings that we have are in Christ and they're in heaven. They're in heavenly places. Those blessings include what we're about to read. A long list of things that God has done for us. Legal things. There have been legal transactions on your behalf in the court of heaven. And they're very real. They're not known on earth. They're mysteries down here. They're not mysteries to us because we read about them plainly. But they are true realities in heaven. They're in the heavenly places. And you have an eternal inheritance. You have a place. You have riches. You have glory that is in store for you in heaven. These are the things that are in heavenly places in Christ for us that make up our spiritual blessings. All spiritual blessings are in Christ. So the question is, how do we get into Jesus Christ to get those blessings? Some of you may remember, in 1985, I was a minister of one year. The Church of Christ had a radio debate program in Bristol, Virginia. An eloquent and gifted Church of Christ preacher got on the radio and used Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. And he quoted it five or ten times and he said, I'm sure that every hearer now can understand that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. Now I want some Baptist preacher to call into this radio program. And I want him to tell me how you get into Christ. The little man was waiting for some poor little Baptist preacher to call in that didn't know his Bible very well so that he could take him to Galatians chapter 3 and say, verse 27, we're all baptized into Jesus Christ. That's the church of Christ. They have a sacred cow called baptism for the remission of sins. And they believe that you're saved by being baptized in water. That's when you're born again. That's when your sins are forgiven. And so that's what he was hoping for. Are you all with me? Does Ephesians 1 and verse 3 end with a period? Does it end with a paragraph mark? Is it the end of a chapter? How blind can you be? Do you know what the word according to means? According to. In the very way specified. In agreement with what has been said. This is how we get into Christ. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now we had a member of this church living in Bristol, Virginia at that time. And he called me. I couldn't listen to that radio program because there's mountains between us and Bristol. But he called and said, you need to shut someone up that's on the radio right now. And he held the phone to the radio so that I could get the gist of what was being said. And we called in and we told him. The answer is in verse 4. Look at the whole explanations in verse 4 as to how we get into Jesus Christ. Well, they can't stand the doctrine of election. Right. 
They hate the doctrine of election and predestination. And so he ran off onto some story about some man that raped his grandmother, etc., etc. And how could that man go to heaven? Now, I didn't say anything about any of that at all. I didn't say that rapists of their grandmothers get to go to heaven. But that's what he tried to do to turn the audience against me. And you know the truth. 101 people out of 100 would be turned against the doctrine of election with an emotional appeal like that. Because the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are revealed to only a few. And these mysteries are right here in this chapter, and in chapter 2, and in chapter 3. And Paul's about to tell us in a few verses, God hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. God has shown us wisdom and understanding of things, and He's made them known to us by His gospel. I'll tell you how you get into Jesus Christ, where all blessings are. I'm going to trace everything back to that one three-letter word, God. God chose us in Christ before the world began. We get into verse 3 through verse 4. Because it tells us in verse 4 how we got into verse 3. God chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Before He laid the foundations of the earth. Before the North American continent stood out of the waters. He had chosen you, brethren. He had written your names in the book of life. He had commissioned His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by covenant to come and die for you. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Brethren, this is glorious, fantastic news. This is the word of truth. This is the gospel of your salvation. The word gospel means good news. This is the good news of your salvation. I want to tell you something about verse 3. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places for saints and for the faithful in Christ Jesus are in Christ. They're not in Mohammed. Amen. They're not in Pope John Paul II. They're not in Pope Benedict XVI. They're in Christ. Amen. They're not in the Church of Mormon. They're not in Joseph Smith. They're not in Mary. They're not in the apostles and they're not in angels. It's in Christ. Amen. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we pick up our hymnals and we sing a song about the Lord Jesus Christ, do not let it just barely seep out of your lips. Open your mouth wide and sing His praise. Amen. Our whole salvation is wrapped up in Him. All spiritual blessings in heaven are in Christ. We are saved by our relationship to Christ, and our relationship to Christ is based on God's choice of us in Him before the foundation of the world, as that fourth verse tells us so plainly. According as He hath chosen us, in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That could mean that we ought to live holy lives, that we ought to live blameless lives, and that we ought to love God and one another. But that's not what it means here. Because another phase of salvation is under consideration than our practical obedience and our conversion. How do I know that? Because of verse 5. Having predestinated us. The holiness, though without blame, and the in love is based on verses 5 and 6. Because having predestinated us is explaining what verse 4 is all about. That holiness... And that without blame and that love relationship that God has towards you is because He put you in the Lord Jesus Christ 
who is His beloved Son, and He's called the Beloved in verse 6, where God could love you. God cannot love sinful men, and we are all sinners. God cannot love a sinful man. It is impossible. It's contrary to His nature. He's a holy God. He hates sin and sinners. So He chose in Christ Jesus where He could love them. Because he, put, he saw them legally holy and legally without blame in Christ Jesus because that's where He put them before the foundation of the world. He made them accepted in the Beloved. God made you acceptable to Himself by putting you in Christ Jesus, who is His well-beloved Son. And you are His Beloved as well because you're in His Beloved. This holiness and this without blame And this love relationship is a legal relationship. Oh, it's very real. It's not figurative. I didn't mean anything like that. I mean legal. It's in heaven. It's before you even existed. God saw you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You were holy. You were without blame and He loved you. That's how God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God loves us. He considers us holy, and there's nothing to blame against us because we're in the Lord Jesus Christ who was the blameless Son of God and who lived and died and lives again for us. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Here's predestination. It occurs four times in the Bible. Two times here. Two times Romans chapter 8. No one preaches it anymore. It's a rare doctrine. It's a despised and a hated doctrine. But it's the truth of the gospel. God has predestinated us. He, having predestinated us, is what He did when He put us in Jesus Christ. He made us accepted in the Beloved so that we could be His children. He was going to have an adoption of sinners to magnify His love, His grace, and His glory to the universe. So He allowed our first parents to fall in the Garden of Eden. Then He chose some of their fallen race in Jesus Christ to be His sons and daughters. To declare to the universe, look at how low I am able to go to find children for my family and look at how high I'm going to exalt them in heaven for eternity. And what makes that great difference? The precious blood of Christ. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ makes that huge difference. We are predestinated to be the sons of God. Predestination means to determine beforehand your destiny. Do you know what your destiny is? A son of God. You are already a son of God eternally. God chose you to be that and predestinated you to it. You're already a son of God legally. You're in Christ Jesus as one of the sons of God. You are a son of God vitally if you're born again. And we're all sons of God this morning by our profession. We claim to be the sons of God. We believe we're the sons of God. We call God our Father. But there's another adoption that we're still waiting for. Romans chapter 8 says there's an adoption that we still wait for. Do you know what that is? The redemption of our bodies. You are going to live forever as a son of God in heaven because God is going to redeem our bodies. I need my body to be bought back. 
Any of you that are above 30 years of age know exactly what I'm talking about. Our bodies need to be bought back. Bought back from the claims of sin against them because sin is destroying them every day. And those of you that are younger, that are younger than 30, your bodies are decaying as well. You're just too dumb to know it. And I say that in all love and kindness. Because your bodies are going downhill too. Because sin is taking our bodies apart. And we're going to be laid in a casket and put in the ground and buried there. But God be praised. He has predestinated us. Our destiny is a Son of God living forever in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. And so Paul starts off with this Ephesian church by laying these things out to them. It started with God in verse 3. Then it was His choice of us in Christ in verse 4. Then it's His predestination of us to be children in verse 5 to Himself. This is for God's glory, brethren. God put us in Jesus Christ and predestinated our destiny as His sons to Himself. Why did God save? To Himself. God saved men for His own honor and glory. That's why God does everything. God does everything for His own glory. He will not share His glory with another. He does it for His glory. He didn't do it because He felt sorry for you. He didn't do it because He thought you were worthy of it. He did it because He thought He was worthy of it. And He wanted to show how great He was by picking the lowest. And that's why He got you. And that's why He got me. Because He picked the lowest. That the Apostle Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners. And I'm an example of how God saves. He's pre- Brethren, you have a destiny, and it's to be a son of God. It's going to be declared to the universe. And do you know why God has done all of this? Do you know why God has blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places? Why He's chosen you in Christ before the world began? And why He's predestinated you to be His son? Look at the last part of verse 5. According to the good pleasure of His will. It was based on the good pleasure of God's will. God did what made Him happy. And do you know what made God happy? It was choosing sinners and turning them into sons of God. And it was taking some of the sons of God, known as the angels, and casting them down to hell forever. That great, that great reversal of fortune is going to redound to the praise of God through all eternity. The torment, the smoke of the torment of the devil and his angels and those that follow Him will ascend up into heaven as incense because of God's judgment and wrath against His rebel enemies. I call on you today to stop being an enemy of God and repent. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and say with the Apostle Paul, Lord, what wilt Thou have me to do? If you can say those words with sincerity, I can tell you something that happened to you before the world was made. I can tell you that God predestinated you to be His Son because only His sons would ever say that in truth. Amen. He did this to the, according to the good pleasure of His will. What a God we worship. And this will is not taught anymore. Right. It is the will of God that is the basis for you being a son of God. It is not your will. Amen. In John chapter 1 and verse 13, John wrote and said about being born again and becoming a child of God, which were born, not of blood. It has nothing to do with race. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. It's not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. There is nothing you can do in your natural state to make a choice to be a son of God, nor of the will of man. I can't make a choice 
for my children, for your children, or for anyone to help them. There's no such thing as a godfather or a godmother in the Bible. That's pagan superstition. No priest, no pope, no man can impose his will to make you a child of God. John 1.13 says, Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. It's God's will. And according to the good pleasure of His will. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Amen. Literally. Praise God from whom all blessings flow because all spiritual blessings are in heavenly places and they flow to us through Christ and by the choice of God's will for us. Verse 6, the apostle goes on and says, to the praise of the glory of His grace. All of this has been done to the praise of the glory of His grace. His grace is not just bare grace. His grace is glorious grace. And His glorious grace Deserves praise. And He's done it all for the praise of the glory of that grace. Do you know what you'll do in heaven? You will praise the glory. The glory is the shining excellence and the beauty of the grace of God. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Wherein, in His grace, He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. I love that sixth verse. I love that sixth verse. Some of you were raised to believe that you had to accept Jesus in order to go to heaven. But the Bible tells us that God had to accept us for us to go to heaven. And God could only accept us by putting us in the Beloved. That last word in verse 6. You're all with me, aren't you? He's made us accepted in the Beloved. In the Beloved is in Christ. The Beloved is Jesus Christ. Didn't God thunder down from heaven? This is my well Beloved Son. That is the Beloved. He did that over and over in the Gospel of Matthew. All you quizzers should know those verses. Which one of you want to stand and quote the three of them? Okay, well, we'll just keep on preaching then. This is my Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Glory. He's made you accepted in the Beloved. He put you in the Beloved when? Before the foundation of the world. He put you in Jesus Christ, His Beloved, which made you acceptable to Him so that He could love you and so that He could look at you and see that you were holy and without blame. It doesn't matter what sins you have committed, are committing or will commit. If you're one of His, they've been washed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and He sees you holy and there's nothing to blame against you and you are accepted in His sight. He loves you as one of His sons through adoption in Jesus Christ. He has adopted He has reached into the bottom dregs of this earth and pulled out men and women for His glory, the praise of the glory of His grace, and saved you. This is Ephesians. It's wonderful. How can you not read any one of those little phrases or clauses and just revel in it? If, If David could say that God's Word was sweeter than the honeycomb to his mouth and of more value than fine gold, and he had never read Ephesians. What would David have said if he ever got his hands on Ephesians 1? I think David had a little idea what was there. Because David was a prophet. And David had the Holy Spirit of God above the rest of his nation. But what a blessing we have here. I wrote you yesterday. I wrote you a little tiny preparatory email. I write you a big one every week. I wrote you a little one. I said, go outside and sit in the sunshine and read Ephesians chapter 1. 
It's the greatest therapy you can ever have for a bad week. Amen. It's the greatest therapy you can have for a bad life. Right. I had more pleasure yesterday trying to tell the God of heaven how much I loved him. For what he has done, is doing, and will do for me and you. Right. Do all of you understand that? Yeah, man. I'm going to get to a passage shortly that's going to tell me most of you don't understand it. And that's why we have to pray for the understanding. Because God has to send His Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, or we will not fully grasp the extent and the value and the greatness of what I'm describing to you right now. Right. We get so wrapped up in this world. We should get wrapped up in the riches of His glory. Amen. If you got wrapped up in the riches of His glory, you wouldn't even be able to think about your dollars and cents. If you got wrapped up in the hope of His calling, you wouldn't worry about what hopes you had for this life. Right. You wouldn't care if everything was stripped away because you still have the hope of His calling Amen. and the riches of His glory, of His inheritance in the saints. But that's later in the chapter. We want to stick to our flow here. Let's get back to verse 6. It's, we got a period at the end of verse 6. There is one glorious sentence that blessed be the God, He started it and He ended it. By putting us in Jesus Christ. And in between is God choosing us, predestinating us, making us His sons before the foundation of the world. In His eyes, we have always been His sons. Because He laid help upon one that is mighty that could take and fulfill the covenant of God and win all of us, delivering us from the power of the devil and from our sin and from condemnation and from God's law and justice and save us with an everlasting salvation. What a sentence. What's your favorite part of that one sentence? You should have sections that you just love to say to yourself and say to the Lord. Listen, brethren, I know today's a little ugly out there, but I'm still thankful for rain. But yesterday was beautiful. The God of heaven was smiling upon you with His sunshine. Did you thank Him for the sunshine? Did you thank Him for the sun? that He puts you in called the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you tell Him how much you loved Him? Did you tell Him that you were sorry you couldn't tell Him how much you loved Him? I'm so thankful He's a merciful Heavenly Father. You know, when it's time to give Him a gift, He doesn't ask for my firstborn. He doesn't ask for a limb of my body. He asks for the sacrifice of my lips. Giving thanks and praise to His name. That's easy, isn't it? Children, isn't it always exciting when your father says, I don't need anything for my birthday as long as you say happy birthday to me? That's cheap, isn't it? Dad's easy. The God of heaven wants our praise. Amen. He wants your heart. He wants your love. He's done so much for us, and here it is described. You know why I call this a mystery of the kingdom of heaven? Because my children keep going off to college and coming home and telling me what they're learning, and none of them come home and tell me that they're learning about this. They go and study history. They go and study history about stupid little boats that came from Portugal to New England. You know, none of which means a single thing to us at all and has no value whatsoever. It doesn't matter whether three boats came, five boats came, or a submarine came. It would not make a bit of difference. This is what makes a difference. God, before He formed the foundation of the earth, 
chose some men out of this human race to be his sons. And he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to buy them back from the demands of his law. And that Lord Jesus Christ, he's put on the throne of heaven. And he's the head over all things for this church. Now that is something we ought to be taught. They don't know anything about it. But here it is. It's just laid out so plainly. It's so simple. We can understand this. Because it was revealed to Paul by the Holy Spirit. And Paul, by the words of the Holy Spirit, communicated it to us. Verse 7. In whom... Now, who do you think that might be? Jesus Christ, the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. In whom we have redemption. Redemption is an economic term. To redeem something is to buy it back from someone else that has a claim against it. Did you know that you had a claim against you? Do you know what the claim was? The soul that sinneth. It shall die. God's law said that we all had to die. Because God's law had a claim against us because we had broken the law. If you break a traffic law, you're going to have a claim against you. We broke God's law and God had a claim against us. And His penalty was not $75 due a month from now. His penalty was death. We had the claim of Adam in the Garden of Eden against us. But we were bought back by the Lord Jesus Christ. We were bought back in whom we have redemption. That's what the word redemption means. When you run through the New Testament, there are different kinds of words used to describe salvation. Sometimes they're economic words. Redeem. Purchase. Those are economic words of buying and selling things. God bought us back from the claims of His law. Sometimes they're family terms like adoption. God uses all sorts of words to help us understand the great transaction called salvation. Sometimes they're legal terms like justification or reconciliation. Here it's redemption. In whom? In Jesus Christ we have redemption through His blood. Jesus Christ shed His blood by dying in our place, paying the penalty, the fine that we owed to God. He bought us back. We had to go to hell because of our own sins. But Jesus Christ bought us back so that we could go to heaven, so that we could be His sons, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Our sins are forgiven because of Jesus Christ shedding His blood for them. God could then look at those that He chose in Christ and predestinated to be His sons and say, they don't have any sins. They're without blame. They're holy. Because Jesus Christ shed His blood on the cross of Calvary, dying in their place. And that is redemption. And that's the forgiveness of sins, so that we can be the sons of God. Without that purchase price, no adoption could take place. God the Father could have desired us as His children. It could not have worked, unless that legal price had been paid of Jesus paying for our sins, so that God could forgive us and accept us into His presence as holy and without blame children. I don't care what you've done in the past, and neither does God, because Jesus Christ paid for it. Brethren, this is the truth of the Gospel. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. On what basis could God do such a thing as to forgive sinners by killing His own Son and shedding His blood according to the riches of His grace? Amen. You mean we ought to sing about grace? 
You know, I'm disappointed in most of you. I ask for songs about grace. You don't like the subject of grace? That scares me. I wrote you yesterday and asked for songs about grace. Some of you wrote me back. Oh, I'm not mad at you. Just disappointed. I represent the King of Kings. I don't understand it. Don't you have any favorite songs of grace? You say, well, I I do have some. just didn't want to take the time to write you. Well, I know I'm not important, but the Lord is. And enough about that. Let's remember that when we pick up our hymnals and open a song and it, sing, and it says grace in it, let's sing it with all everything we've got. Right. Because it's the riches of His grace. His grace is not poor. His grace is not average. His grace is not middle class. His grace is rich. In order that God would ever do that. I do not know why God would do that. It's pure grace. It's unexplainable why God would save us by His grace. Verse 7 ends with the words, the riches of His grace. So when we open up verse 8, we have the word wherein, you know what it's referring to. Wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Paul's progressing in his development of this chapter. In the riches of His grace, not only did God choose us before the foundation of the world, verse 4, give us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, verse 3, predestining us to be children, in verse 5, make us accepted in the Beloved, in verse 6, forgive us our sins and redeem us, in verse 7. Not only did He do all that, then He told us about it. Then He told us about it. Wherein, in the riches of His grace, He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. God has revealed His wisdom and His prudent way of doing things to us through the Gospel. This lines up with 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16, through and it's why I read that passage to you. Wherein, in God's grace, He has also abounded to tell us about it. God could have left us ignorant of it. We would have ended up in heaven, and thanks be to God for that, but we wouldn't have known about it now. We would be facing death without hope. But we have a hope of His calling. We know about some riches that are waiting for us. We love the Lord Jesus Christ because He's told us about what He's done through His Son, Jesus Christ, wherein He hath abounded. He hasn't given us just a little bit of knowledge. He's given us a whole lot. He's abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. The the devising of the plan of salvation that we just described in, in brief, in one sentence, the wisdom and prudence involved in that plan of salvation is incredible. The Bible tells us that when a born-again child of God hears the Gospel, they see in the Gospel the power and the wisdom of God. That He could devise to send His own Son to die in our place. That He could predestinate us before the world began based on His legal confidence of what Jesus Christ would do for us. Now, God is abundantly wise and prudent. But He has revealed some of that wisdom and prudence to us. And we know that this wisdom and prudence is given to us because of the next verse, which leads us forward in this second sentence. Wherein, Let's get verse 8 again. Wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will. God made known to the apostles in particular, 
The mystery of his will. Now, Paul's going to tell us. See, I'm cheating a little because I know the rest of the book a little bit. But in chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's going to say, God has kept these things secret since the foundation of the world, but he's now revealing them to his apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So with that in mind, I can read verse chapter 1 a little bit better than if we didn't have chapter 3. But coming back to verse 1 and verse, chapter 1 and verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, God is revealing these things to us. He did it first to the apostles. You know, when those apostles walked with Jesus Christ on this earth, they hardly had any understanding about anything. Right. He was having to say, oh, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have said. He'd have to say fools to them. He called them fools because they didn't believe what he had said to them. They were still trying to defend him at the end, not wanting him to go to the crucifixion. They did not understand what Jesus Christ was doing here on earth. But what happened after Pentecost? Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and unloaded on those Jews with understanding of several passages of Scripture. He gets into Joel chapter 2. He gets into Psalm 16. He gets into Psalm 110 and explains it all in a short sermon. God gave them understanding and then they gave it to us. This is a benefit of the new covenant. Brethren, the Old Testament, the Old Testament before Pentecost, before John the Baptist, the Bible calls it weak, beggarly, poor, a shadow, figures. But the New Testament is the reality. It's plain. It's clear. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says there's no glory in that Old Testament compared to the glory of the New Testament. The Old Testament is so vague, even Moses had to drop a curtain over his face when he came down from Mount Sinai. But Paul said we use great plainness of speech because the New Testament is very plain. This is not complicated. God chose us before He made the world. He had a plan as to why he made the world, and that was to let a human drama play out in which he would save some for the glory of his grace. That's very plain. That's not a mystery to us. It's a mystery to everyone else. It's hidden wisdom that they cannot see. They never will see. We see it, and it's changed our lives by bringing us to this place to want to revel in it, sing about it, and serve the God that did these things for us having made known unto us the mystery of His will. On what basis was this further step in His kind dealings with us? According to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. God didn't do it because anyone told Him to do it. God didn't do it because we told Him we needed it. God did it according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. Do you know we've read about the good pleasure of God twice now? We read about it in verse 5 that our predestination to be His sons is His good pleasure. And then telling us about these things is His good pleasure. In verse 9. Now He's about to open up some more things to us. And so we come to verse 10. This is according to the good pleasure of His will and to the purpose that He's purposed in Himself. And this is some more of the wisdom and prudence in which He has abounded to us having made known unto us the mystery of His will. Mystery does not mean it's a mystery anymore. Mystery means it was a mystery. That's why, just read chapter 3. It explains it in in, in great detail. Because Paul wants to point out, I have a special dispensation from God, and that's to give you things plainly that no one else has ever seen before. 
So back here to chapter 1 and verse 10. Here is some more wisdom and prudence. Here's some further revelation about what's coming. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. God the Father is revealing in this verse that in the fullness of times, when God's plan for this world and the universe comes to its end, He will have gathered at that time all things in Jesus Christ that He might be all in all. Jesus Christ will have gathered together all the elect out of every tribe, tongue, family, and nation on earth. Some are in heaven now. Some are on earth. And if the Lord doesn't come for a while, some haven't even been born yet. But Jesus Christ is going to gather them all together into one body. Brethren, from the beginning, there has been violence in the universe because of the devil and his angels and our parents following them. There is conflict in the universe. It's a divided universe. There's angels that are reserved in chains under darkness to the day of great judgment. There are other angels that are the holy and elect angels that are God's angels in heaven. Jesus Christ is going to reunite all things. The curse of this earth is going to be lifted. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. The devil and his angels and wicked men will be consigned to the lake of fire. Righteousness will reign. All the elect will be there. Every single one of them. Jesus Christ is going to gather everything together and put back the universe the way that God had it in the beginning and He will get all the honor and the glory for it as the sovereign over it. Amen. This is what's coming. In the dispensation of the fullness of times. Dispensation means an administrative control or management over the fullness of times. God controls the administration of what's happening in different times of the earth's history. And He has determined in the dispensation of the fullness of times to gather together all things in Jesus Christ. All the angels will be reporting to Him in heaven. He will have put down all rule, all reign, all authority. He will have destroyed death. The last enemy to be put under His feet is death. All things will serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially, especially all the elect. Some are in heaven, the spirits of just men made perfect. We're here on earth. We are separated in a way by a little bit of distance. It's a little bit in the sight of God. A little bit of distance. He's going to put us all together into one body. There'll be one kingdom. There'll be one Lord. There'll be one faith. There'll be one body. There'll be one church. There'll be one congregation. And it will be in heaven because Jesus Christ is going to put it all together. These poor Ephesian, these poor Gentile Ephesians, and I mean it, In just a few verses, you'll know that Paul understood that about them. And they understood it. These poor Gentiles were hearing the gospel preached by a Jew. But there was no reason to fear. And there's no reason for us to fear living 2,000 years later and being Gentiles ourselves. Because Jesus Christ is going to bring all things together. You know, Jacob long ago laid in his deathbed. And when he got to son number four, he said, Judah... The, the scepter is not going to depart from your family until Shiloh come. Right. And unto him, help me, I forgot it, shall the gathering of the people be. Right. Jesus Christ would gather all the people together under his righteous reign as our brother, our high priest, our apostle, the bishop of our souls, the great shepherd of the sheep, and everything else you want to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's coming. The world doesn't know. What does the world tell you is coming? 
we're going to get cars that get 40 miles a gallon instead of 25. Wow. We're going to have manned space, we're going to have manned space flight to Mars. We're going to have freeze-dried food that you don't have to eat as much or, you know, what are we going to have? They try to talk about the future. I'll tell you the future right now. It's in that 11th verse. God, in the dispense, in the, in the administration and control and management of the fullness of times, has purposed that Jesus Christ is all in all. And he's going to gather us all together into one kingdom. And the kingdom, you know what the Bible says? The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Amen. When will this happen? At the second coming of Jesus Christ. Where are we told that? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, it says, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, that God might be all in all. The last enemy to be destroyed and to put under his feet is death. All that's in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what we're heading toward, brethren, and it is a great thing. And God has abounded to us in wisdom and prudence by telling us about these things. He's going to get this world and this universe and heaven all back together into one. There will be no more animosity or conflict because all the enemies will be destroyed, including death. A minute ago when I said verse 11, I meant verse 10, obviously. It says, even in Him. The Apostle wants to remind us with those last three words of verse 10, even in Him, even in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom also. Who's this whom? The same one. The Lord Jesus Christ, in whom also. Well, what's the also there for? Well, along with these other things that I've just listed, what have I listed? Election. Predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, along with all those things, in addition to those things, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. God does all things according to the counsel of His own will, and one of the counsels of that will has been to give us an eternal inheritance. Now at this point, this is Paul talking about himself and the early believers among the Jews. Just hold on, and I'll prove that to you. There's a distinction being made now in Paul's language. But that isn't the important point of verse 11. The important point is, in addition to election... Oh, let me stop for a minute. Every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing, all spiritual blessings, all flow from the doctrine of election. Did you notice that when we started in verses 3 and 4, once he described all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, he immediately moved to election. This is where we differ from everyone. We believe that election is the basis and the fountainhead of all God's blessings. Everyone else believes that all spiritual blessings have their fountainhead in your obedience or your acceptance of Christ or your submission to Him. But it all flows from election. But now we're being told that not only are there all these legal transactions done in heaven on our behalf, There is an eternal inheritance waiting for us. There is a place where there are riches that we are going to claim as the sons of God. A will has been written. You have a rich father that you may not have known about. And it's the God of heaven. And he wrote a will. It's called the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the everlasting covenant. You can read about it in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, Revelation 5. It has all spiritual blessings as the benefits of that will. And Jesus Christ died to put the will into force. 
No will or testament is of any value while a man lives. You know, as a wicked man would say, the old man has to die before we can get our hands on it. I said I spoke as a fool. I said I spoke worse than that. I said, as wicked men would say, the old man has to die before we can get our hands on it. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ died, and it is sure to us. When we take communion, it's the, this cup is the New Testament. See, last will and testament. This is the New Testament in my blood. And that's what's being talked about here in verse 11. God has predestinated us, determined our destiny beforehand, that we have an eternal inheritance in heaven. Heaven is yours. It's a place. Heaven has riches. They're yours. God is there. He's yours. Jesus Christ is there. He's a joint heir with you. According to Romans chapter 8, you inherit God and all the things of heaven along with Him because you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That is unbelievable. Amen. Believe it. Amen. It's beyond belief. How in the world can we get wrapped up in the things of this life with what we've just covered so far? This is true. Ignore it to your own peril. Mock it. Doze. Wish I would end. I represent the God of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is, his, this is the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation. Amen. Love it. Amen. And all of this was according. I'll tell you what, there's no chapter in the Bible that has the word according more times than Ephesians chapter 1. I don't know how closely some of you read Ephesians chapter 1 in preparation for today, but you'd actually be amused to find out how many accordings there are because Paul is continually making a point and drawing another conclusion from it and then drawing another conclusion from it. And he does it all the way through the chapter, according to, according to, according to, according to. And what is this eternal inheritance? On what basis is it? We were told that our election, predestination, adoption, redemption, all of that was according to the good pleasure of His will. What about these things? Well, it's according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. We're right back to the will of God. Heaven, heaven as a destination for you, as your destiny, was chosen beforehand by God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. What else did his will have in it? Well, Paul started off this little section by saying God has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And now he says this 12th verse, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Paul's talking about himself and the first Jews that were converted under the preaching of the gospel. The gospel went first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. How do I know that verse 12 is talking about Paul and the first Jews that were converted? By reading verse 13. In whom ye also trusted. That's why the word also is there. Also is an adverb, meaning there's two things being compared. We have two different categories. And Paul's working himself up to point out to those Gentile Ephesians that they had just as much of an interest in it as well. And of course, if you've read the book, you know that chapters 2 and 3 are going to deal with that subject extensively. Amen. Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. God abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. He chose us before the world began. Jesus Christ died for us. He adopted us. He redeemed us. He forgave us our sins. And now He's shown us the abundant wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Him so that we believed on Him and we heard the Gospel to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. When a man trusts in Christ, it is to the praise of His glory. 
If a man ever trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is to the praise of His glory, and it is according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, or you would never trust in Him. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is to His glory because He does it. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto those things which were spoken of Paul. Lydia, Acts 16, 14. That's the grace of God abounding toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And it abounded especially to Paul and the other apostles and the Jews, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. That first band of saints, from them sounded out the word of the Lord, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the praise of His glory. Everyone knew how Paul was converted, didn't they? To the praise of His glory. God struck him down on the road to Damascus, to the praise of His glory. What kind of power was there in the city of Ephesus? Mighty signs and wonders were done by the Apostle Paul. Even handkerchiefs were working. And they weren't like Benny Hinn's. He didn't say send $50 and it's tax deductible. When hankies were taken from the Apostle Paul, they worked every single time. Powerfully. That we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. The Lord Jesus, the God of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ wants a body of believers on earth that trust in Him. That's why He sends them the gospel to hear the good news of their salvation. He has already chosen them in Christ before the world began. Jesus already died for them. He's regenerated them and given them a new heart. Then they hear the gospel and they respond to it and it's the praise of His glory. And anyone who is ever truly saved or converted always gives all the glory to God. You ought to listen to Arminians give their testimonies. So many times Arminians sound like they know the truth of the gospel because they try to give all the glory to God. But yet when you boil their theology down, all the glory belongs to man. Because God and Jesus Christ haven't done anything more for one that's lost than one that's saved. But it's to the praise of His glory. Verse 13, In whom ye also trusted, you Gentile Ephesians, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When it says the gospel of your salvation, it's not that the gospel brought salvation, it's that the gospel is the good news of salvation. The word gospel means good news. So when you read the gospel of your salvation, it means the good news of your salvation. When you heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation. Do you know what the gospel does? It does two things every time it's preached. Some people ignore it and reject it. Do you know what it proves about them? It's the savour of death unto death. It proves that they were never born again, never chosen in Christ, never adopted, never predestinated. But for those that believe, it's a savour of life unto life. It shows that they were elected, were chosen, were adopted, were predestinated, were forgiven, were made acceptable in the Beloved. The Gospel never takes anyone from death to life. The Gospel's never the savour of death unto life. It's the savour of death unto death. It's the savour of life unto life. When the Gospel is preached and men reject it and ignore it and live any way they want to, that is in general the sign that they are not born again, they're not the children of God. But when they hear it, believe it, and obey it, that's the sign that they are the children of God. It's the gospel of your salvation by revealing that salvation to you. In whom also? Who would that be? In whom also? After that ye believed. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the last part of verse 12. 
trusted in Christ. Verse 13, in whom ye also trusted. And in the middle part of verse 13, in whom also. In whom also. You trusted in Him, and in whom also after that ye believed. In Jesus Christ they were given another blessing. The Holy Spirit of God, which I preached to you last Sunday, the second service. In whom also that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. What's the promise? Stay in Jerusalem until I endue you with power from on high. The promise of the Holy Ghost. The promise that God the Father would give to Jesus Christ and He would give to His church of the, of the Comforter to remain with them forever. That's the promise. And it's called the Holy Spirit of promise and you were sealed with it. How many of you have seen a notary? When you sign a notary and they take that seal out and put the paper in the seal and then squeeze it shut and then you can feel all those little fine prints in it to make sure that no one can duplicate or counterfeit that seal... That's a seal to say that it's authentic. It's real. You know, we have seals on the dollar, on the currency of the United States of America. Kings used to have a seal. They could put some wax on an envelope or wax on a piece of paper and, sorry, and plant, plant their seal in that wax and there would be proof that the king had put his stamp there. Pilate sealed the tomb where Jesus Christ laid. You have a seal. The seal is the Holy Spirit. The, the stamp of God's approval on you as one of His sons is the Holy Spirit of God. Inside you, the Holy Spirit says God is your Father. When you're walking with Him, He does. He sure was telling me that yesterday. Was He telling you that yesterday? Amen. Were you crying, Abba, Father, yesterday because the Holy Spirit was being a seal to you inside that you were a son of God? And then it's a seal on the outside. There's no way a man can, can bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. No man can live that way without the seal of God and the Holy Spirit being upon him. He can't do it. When a man, oh, every man fails. But then that man, when he fails, he confesses his wrong and goes forward. Every man fails. That's a child of God. But the sign is, he, he generally lives in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit is the sign, the seal, that this is one of God's children. Right. In whom you all trusted, then you were sealed with that Holy Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance. It is the down payment on what God's going to give us in the future. It's the down payment right now to have the Holy Spirit with us that communicates to us that God loves us, that He's our God, that what I just preached to you is the truth. You know, there's only one way you can know that what I preach to you is the truth, and that's God the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. There's no amount of logic and there's no amount of volume that I can give it to get the job done unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. But if the Holy Spirit reveals it to you, then you have within you an earnest of what's coming. You have a down payment. Remember, I told you what earnest money is. Earnest money is when you give a seller something, a little bit of a down payment to tell him that you are in earnest and you will buy the whole thing. We have the Holy Spirit as earnest deposit because God is going to buy the whole thing. The redemption of the purchased possession. See, here's another redemption. This is why there are five phases in the Bible. Doesn't it say that in verse verse 14? Until the redemption of the purchased possession? Those are economic terms. We already had a redemption in verse 7. What's this redemption? I thought we had redemption. This redemption is still coming. There, does anybody know Romans chapter 8? That we're waiting for, we're waiting for the adoption. To wit, 
the redemption of our bodies. I love it when the Holy Spirit says to wit. It means, Jonathan, if you want some wits about the Bible, look what I'm about to explain to you. That's what the word to wit means. It means we're waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies, the purchased possession. Jesus Christ has purchased us. He's going to buy all of us back, body, soul, and spirit, and we will be in heaven. What's the down payment on the certainty that that's going to happen? That you can go out in a day like yesterday and lift up your eyes to heaven and bless and extol and praise the God of heaven. And thank him for his son, Jesus Christ, and tell him from your heart that you love him. If you didn't do that yesterday, I feel sorry for you. If you didn't do it the day before, I feel sorry for you. Because then you can't lay hold of the eternal inheritance that's coming. The only way we can lay hold of it is when that earnest is shining through us and in us. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And what does he say again at the end of verse 14? Unto the praise of his glory. Every single bit of all that we just covered in 14 verses is to the praise of his glory. May God and the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified. Amen.